Welcome to the Dynamist, a podcast by Lincoln Network. I'm Evan Schwartztrauber. Software licensing. This is not necessarily a topic that most consumers think about on a daily basis, unless you are a massive nerd, but it is critical to how we use the internet. From the programs we use in our daily jobs to the apps we use to entertain ourselves. Tech policy, of course, has gotten increased focus from Congress and regulators in recent years. They've mostly focused on issues like privacy or how big the tech companies are to issues with the app stores, Google, Play Store, Amazon App Store. But one area that arguably gets a lot less attention maybe than it should is cloud. What do I mean by cloud? I'm not talking about the clouds that you see when you're flying in an airplane. I'm talking about cloud services. This is a term that refers to a wide range of products. Generally, we're talking about apps that are not really using internal infrastructure or hardware. So you may think back to the days when if you worked at a white collar job, you'd go into the basement, there'd be a room with a loud air conditioner and lots of servers and lots of equipment. Increasingly, companies are relying on just third parties using these uh, applications on the internet and they don't have that internal infrastructure. So think about the difference between you working on a Google Doc versus storing a document on your computer's hard drive, or maybe you use Slack to communicate in your workplace. My guest today says that software licensing has become too restrictive and anti-competitive, making it significantly harder for businesses and governments to operate. One, is that true? Let's find out. And two, is there a role for policymakers, you know, potentially legislation or regulators to step in and remedy this? Ryan Triplett is the executive director of the Coalition for Fair Software Licensing. Ryan, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. So Ryan, before you uh, became the executive director of this coalition, how did you get into this? Tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I have actually been working in technology policy for about two decades now. I got my early start, like so many people in the, the Washington, D.C. area, working as a congressional staffer, um, was up on the Senate and was a counsel and then chief intellectual property counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And after that, working on primarily patent reform and copyright bills, went on to work for the Intel Corporation and and kind of really sunk in deep to technology policy and on a range of different topics ever since then. And I'm hooked, so to speak, when it comes to tech policy. Yeah, it sounds like you've always been uh, working on the sexy topics that everyone loves so much, especially intellectual property. I think right? your definition of sexy is different <laughs> from what a lot of others are, but for me, I would agree. Well, that's the goal of this podcast is really to bring these topics and make these kitchen table issues. So yeah. one of the trends we were seeing before COVID was this shift to the cloud, right? Mm-hmm. I mentioned the old kind of room with the loud air conditioner. And increasingly, companies were saying, why am I going to host all of this hardware in my building? I have to provide real estate for it. I, you know, It increases my electric bill, et cetera, when I can contract with a different company and have them just kind of host all of it and I'll access it over the internet. Is it fair to say that that trend was just dramatically increased by COVID because people went home and a lot of companies said, if everyone's going to be working from home or if we're going to have these hybrid arrangements. Why am I spending all this money on commercial real estate? Why am I spending money on this hardware? Is that something we've seen, this dramatic shift in the market? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there was, as you noted before COVID, there was a trend towards the cloud before. COVID was definitely, I would say, kind of like this X factor that had an exponential jump. Um, so to your point, whether it was um, having to, for, for large corporations, having to account for moving a significant portion of their workforce um, and having remote capabilities and ensuring that they have access, but also security measures in place to address all of those, but also small businesses, small businesses that traditionally would have been 
only brick and mortar for many, many years as they were looking at click and collect and other options to be able to kind of ensure they have a drive in revenues, they began turning to the cloud for their, you know, ERP systems, how to process sales and having having a lot of that move to these third parties probably years before they were actually thinking about it. So there was definitely that. And unless you work in the IT department of a company, or maybe depending on what kind of white collar job you have, you may not necessarily be familiar with the products and services we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're not talking about, you know, Facebook and TikTok and YouTube, right? We're talking about productivity tools or collaboration tools or databases. Are there products that kind of illustrate what we're talking about that folks might be familiar with? Yeah. I mean, the easiest way, I think like two of the different ways that to think about these products is they're either the guts of your business. Um, I mean, really, and I, when I say guts, I mean, the actual intestines are what keep keep everything flowing. Um, they are really what the, the tools that allow you to track sales coming in and out, but just generally for you to be able to send emails, for you to connect with your coworkers. Um, I think you hit on some, like, you know, people... Zoom has become the verb um, that right. everybody uses. Like there, there are things like that, but also just more generally, as we're looking at, and this is kind of less, I would say, kind of in the day, daily speak, but certainly in Washington, it's data management tools. Like how do you really understand the flow of these sales coming in and out? Like the, these are the tools that are really um, important to ensure the agility, the growth, the daily functioning of a corporation's big and small these days. Right. So you have all this data on sales that you could use to inform your production decisions, your inventory decisions, your marketing, mm-hmm. but unless you are using kind of a tool to analyze the data, it's otherwise pretty worthless. Yeah. So consumers might be familiar with software licensing in kind of an elementary sense, like, oh, I, I, my Microsoft Word expired, I need to renew it. Or, you know, maybe they subscribe to a project management tool like mm-hmm. a Basecamp or something, but they might be less familiar with software licensing in the aspects that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Do you have like a simple kind of dictionary definition that you use to try to get people in the headspace to understand software licensing? Well, I think in terms of, I mean, A, when you you talk about software licensing, there's, it's an amorphous term that really is evolving every day. But to put in perspective, it's actually the examples that you raised are spot on. But think about it at an organizational level, like just beyond um, what I am doing on a one-to-one basis, but at organizationally, what do the different departments, the agencies, the divisions of whether it be my corporation or my government department, what do they need? And looking at those software licensing at that big and broader scale. So you are the head of this coalition. Mm-hmm. Coalition implies that there's lots of people in it. Yeah. <laughs> what types of companies are in the coalition? So our our membership really ranges. It has someone kind of the the sectors that you would imagine, infrastructure providers, SaaS providers, cybersecurity providers. But really part of the reason that the coalition came about is focused on our customers. And those customers represent the financial services sector, the healthcare industry, kind of the range of the daily customers and businesses that you interact with um, because of the experiences that they were having with restrictive licensing and the impact that was having on their digital transformation strategies and, and what clouds they were using. And are there any companies that someone would recognize that are in the coalition on your website? They're not listed. Is there a reason for that? Yes. Uh, so 
the member companies are many that that folks would recognize. I, and I will also say many that people wouldn't necessarily recognize because there's a lot of startups and smaller, like kind of mom and pop shop type businesses that are in there. But part of the reason why our members aren't currently listed is because of their reliance on a number of companies and frankly, some companies that they're encountering issues with unrestrictive licensing and their concerns about retaliation. That is in part part of the reason why the coalition was, was established is to highlight these issues, but also to begin to give them a voice. If there's pushback, if sometimes if you have customers that speak out, whether it's to the press, certainly like an avenue like this, and they they identify themselves individually, they'll then find themselves subject to audits or increased prices with their software licenses. So they were like, we need to find a solution of how we both raise awareness about this, but also do it in a manner that we're not going to get immediate retaliatory measures against us. Yeah, and we'll get into the details of what that retaliation might look like. Sorry to jump ahead a little bit. No, 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 please. It's foreshadowing is exciting for the audience. Um, So your coalition says, quote, organizations typically rely on a few key software companies to provide these tools. Who are these few key software companies? These are just various vendors of technology kind of throughout the cloud stack. I will note that where the coalition is focused is, By having the principles of fair software licensing, we're focused on kind of an industry-wide change and not just having the quote-unquote name or shame strategy where it's, you know, we've seen this in Washington before where companies will come together and they're focused on one company in particular. So they'll they'll be this and they're like, that one, that's the one that is, is bad. And it becomes really more about a single company rather than the practices themselves. So while there are, I mean, there are a number of vendors that, that customers are having issues with. This is really much more focused on the actual principles as a solution. When I look at the cloud market, I see an American success story. Consumers can enjoy free services like Google Docs. The, the computing market itself has grown to become hundreds of billions of dollars. The majority of that is in North America and no shade to Canada and Mexico, but obviously that means America is the dominant player. It's expected to be closer to $2 trillion at the end of this decade. So that's jobs, that's innovation, that's products that businesses can benefit from, businesses of all sizes, small, medium, and large. American companies leading the way. Why should consumers care if everything seems to be going well? Are there harms that are being caused by this market? Well, and I think actually that's a a perfect point to make where where from the coalition's perspective, we want to make sure that we meet the numbers that Gartner and others are are projecting to to meet those trillion dollar market numbers to ensure that growth and jobs, but also ensure that from customers are able to have uh, full flexibility and choice to to choose like all these different um, cloud service kind of offerings that are coming up. Fundamentally, this is really about competition. It's about ensuring a fair and balanced market out there that you have that because while there it has been quite a bit of attention within the cloud market on, I would say, kind of a handful of different cloud service providers, this, this is one that is absolutely booming, whether you're looking at the SaaS level, but really also down to the infrastructure level, to people providing Active Directory services and um, things like that. And we want to ensure that there is that robust growth and customers are able to access it. One area that your coalition is focused on a lot is government contracting. And listeners might not be aware that, yes, while the commercial sector for cloud is huge and businesses themselves are purchasing these products from cloud providers, 
the U.S. government is, of course, a massive contractor. We've seen fights in D.C. over who's getting contracts, right? Microsoft and Amazon fighting over um, you know, the Jedi contract uh, with the Defense Department. And it's a big deal. And obviously, the government, so much money, the U.S. government, it's a huge important customer. And there was a report commissioned by NetChoice, a technology trade association that, you know, I'm not going to get into all the, the details that might not be super exciting, but the, the kind of the, the, uh, the, the upshot of the report was that major software contractors like Microsoft and Oracle were locking federal agencies into, you know, these contracts and essentially costing the taxpayers a lot of money, right? And, and if you're a yes. taxpayer, you know, you may not be paying attention to the cloud or like what the agencies are actually purchasing, but in general, I would say most Americans want to get the most bang for their buck. Mm -hmm. So this report kind of calls out these two companies. What are some of the practices that are being alleged here? Yeah. So actually what's really interesting is Coalition was actually established to initially just focus on the commercial practices. And it was given the interest of a number of offices on the Hill that we began getting more involved in what is happening at the government. Um, and it was because they needed to consult with somebody who has experience looking at, because this is, as, as we're saying, like this isn't a kitchen table discussion. So we got brought in to have a, have discussions about well, what's happening. And so how, do, how does this really work? What are these practices? Um, and as we were talking more to the offices, it was really getting a sense of how, I would say, exponentially egregious some of these practices are when you're talking about the U.S. government because of the amount of dollars. I mean, you're talking about multiple zeros behind these contracts and excess of what we, what will happen with a commercial contract. So, I mean, some of the um, some of the practices will occur with you know, with tying tying of core productivity software um, and conditioning discounts for. So normally, when you're looking at software, you'll buy it, and historically, it's like I'm, I'm looking at it in the silo. So. I need to have X number of seats or basically these are the, the permissions for the number of licenses that you need. Okay, so I need to have X number to meet my employees. I'm going to add some more on to allow for growth. And based off of that number, given that it is such a sizable number, there's generally a discount that's associated with that. Right, just like buying any product yeah. in bulk, in, that, that applies to software as well. If I were to buy a single Microsoft Word license that may cost more per person than if a company is buying 20,000 of them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. As you began to have that digital transformation and people, um, the government was increasingly moving to the cloud, but also the commercial sector, they were able to use those licenses they had purchased for their historically on-premise software and then move it to the cloud provider of choice. Well, what's interesting is over the past couple of years, you've seen some um, companies that provide both software and have adjacent kind of cloud services beginning to condition those discounts, not on the number of software licenses you're using, but on the adoption of their own cloud service. This presents the customer with a lot of double-edged swords, and frankly, it imposes cost no matter what. Okay, so let's say they've been using an alternative cloud service provider. Well, they're looking at the cost being, you know, two, three, four times more for the, for the core productivity software or other software that they need to run their business to be able to do so on the cloud service provider of choice, if they're actually able to run that, that software there. Or they're looking to have to go through an entirely different migration process to use the software provider's own cloud services. 
this is not cheap. This isn't something that's like, okay, I'm just going to like switch from A to B and here we go. Like it has an exponential cost. So you're looking at potentially a cost savings on the software, but unexpected costs on the new cloud service. So it's been putting a lot of customers both on the government side and on the commercial side in a catch-22 in a difficult position. But how is this any different than loyalty programs or bundling that we see in other areas of the economy? You know, a couple things come to mind. Disney says if you do ESPN Plus and Disney and Spotify together or Hulu, probably not Spotify. We'll, we'll, we'll have to fact check that after the episode. But yeah. if it, you know, like ESPN, Hulu and Disney together, you get a discount, right? And you can argue that that makes someone less likely to subscribe to Netflix because they're getting a discount, right? They're not evaluating each product on its own merits. Or you have an airline that says, if you only fly with me and use our credit card, I'll be more likely to upgrade you to first class. And yes, that maybe means that the customer is spending extra time taking connecting flights or not getting a cheaper flight with Southwest, right? So we've seen this in the economy before, right? Loyalty, rewards, bundling discounts. How is it any different than what you're describing? Like one key difference is if you're looking at this bundle, you can arguably either cancel the bundle, go for a smaller one. You're able to kind of transfer between them really easily, frankly, within a matter of a couple of minutes, switch it, here I go. This this is now meets my purposes. I, I no longer like this entertainment programming, and so I want to go over here. But in this instance, what you're talking at, what you're talking about with the lock into a single vendor here and hide to the both cloud infrastructure and a series of services. We're talking about collaboration services on top of the productivity suite, also with security services. Well, then let's say that I want to either add in additional security services or I want to switch and have, there's new best and breed security services. Well, when you're locked into a single vendor, those switching costs are significant. It's not a matter of like, I'm going to pay one month's rent or one one month's fees for the service. You're looking at kind of a wholesale cost. If you're, once again, if if you're able to even do it, given that so much of this is dependent on you running on this core infrastructure. So what is the solution here? Let's say, you know, let's take the example of the VA and Microsoft, because that's something that was reported by FedScoop when they were uh, describing the study I mentioned earlier. And they essentially, you know, the study says this was a particularly egregious example of unfair software licensing, where essentially the Veterans Affairs, Department of Veterans Affairs, right, big government agency, they, you know, wanted to engage in new cloud services and you know, they couldn't necessarily move over to a different provider. And the study says it cost the taxpayers $1.6 billion. Quote, the VA capitulated to Microsoft's dominance. What does that look like in practice? Like how does that negotiation happen? And how does a government agency, you would think the government agency has a certain amount of clout and leverage. How does a government agency come to the conclusion where I can't shop for new vendors and I'm going to spend an extra $1.5 billion? Well, not being able to speak to the specifics of the VA, um, it's what's interesting is that you'll we're seeing two different things, and actually Garland hits hits on these um, both these points in his report. So, one, you have the actual vendor lock in, where it's through these contractual terms, through the tied conditions of of different bundles and services that make these switching costs very difficult. But also, what's interesting is you do see perpetual lock in, where just the, and I, I think that's really what you saw in the case of arguably the VA, maybe others, where there is this, well, we've been doing this for so long. We've been using this vendor for so long. It's almost like we're not going to entertain the alternative costs. Are there, are there cheaper, more efficient 
providers out there or better services. And so looking at it and just kind of defaulting back to who they've used as legacy providers. So your coalition articulates principles of fair software licensing mm-hmm. without getting into all of them because some, some of them are <laughs> a little bit easier to understand than others. How would adhering to these principles, whether a company decides to voluntarily or some future action by the government forces companies to adopt these principles, how would they solve the issues that you've described of lock-in and competition concerns? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there's a couple of different ways, and I'll kind of highlight some of my favorite, so to speak, principles. You love there. all your children equally, but there's yeah, a couple exactly. that Exactly. I yeah. definitely love them equally, but there's definitely <laughs> some that I think that, and also I think that there's some that are easier to address um, and that are almost no brainers. Like the, the first one being there is like licensing terms should be clear and intelligible. This is something that it's been met with resistance and it's interesting why. So this fundamentally just says that as a customer, be it the government, be it a corporate entity, be it me just as an individual, I should be able to understand the license that I'm getting into. I should be able to understand the terms of use, like what are, what are my bounds and, um, and limitations. The most important reason for this is because these are also the grounds on which I get audited for compliance, where basically my software vendor can potentially come back to me later and say, okay, we're just, we want to make sure that you're within the, the bounds of this agreement. So I need to actually understand what is in that agreement to begin with. Now, what's been happening increasingly over a series of years is you'll find some software vendors that will kind of embed a series of hyperlinks into their contract. So, A, you're not even looking at the full language that's that's on the contract, like on the page or on the screen, so to speak. But you have to almost kind of choose your own adventure, go through the hyperlinks to fully understand the scope. Um, so that that's one. Um, and talking to some, I've heard it's like people have basically shrugged this off as kind of almost a pipe dream and be like, well, these are just inherently complex products. Well, yes, they are, but that's all the more reason why the terms that are dictating how I can use them day to day need to be clearer. And also, um, conversely, I've heard from a number of companies have said, yes, this is actually a significant mission that we are undertaking to like, whether it's reorganizing their contracts so that like different provisions kind of coherently make sense together. So that that's the first one that I would highlight. And it's something that... It also relates directly to whether you're going to have unexpected charges. Having in your understanding within your um, your contract that there will be maintenance fees, that those like those licenses or those um, fees are separate and distinct from what you're paying for just the use of the license. That there's end user fees. You need to understand that from the outset. That that's what it what it's going to be. So having this like clear and predictable understanding, which will then also relate back to some other um, like. Freedom from retaliatory measures. That is that retaliatory measures can be surprise audits that may take place in the months leading up to the license, the renewal of a license. This is basically a forcing mechanism to push the customer. They may be looking at going to an alternative vendor. They then find themselves subject to an audit, which can be costly in and of itself. And they're presented with a choice of, well, either we proceed with this audit or you can just re-up with our license and you don't have to worry about the audit. That would be, I mean, the, it's it's hard to even imagine this in the consumer world, but I guess an equivalent would be, I am a YouTube influencer. I thought about using Vimeo instead. And then YouTube said like, okay, we're, we're going to examine how you've used the platform to see if you violated any terms and conditions, or you could just not switch to Vimeo. 
I mean, well, not wanting to speak to the specific, like, yeah. because it's, it's, it's never like necessarily a one for one comparison right. of these alternatives. But yeah, but you know, basically, I can't, I'm trying to think of, of it's almost like a rental agreement. Right. Um, it, but, like taking it aside from other, like let, let's take it back to something that is Analog. what we, what yeah. most people have to deal with. Okay, so your your house or a rental agreement, and you renew on a you know one or two year basis, you're six or seven months away from coming up and your landlord then says, okay, well, uh, I need to come in and I need to make sure that you haven't had any parties, that you haven't been turning your stereo up too loud, that you haven't, maybe, God forbid, you should have some extra house guests. Um, (laughs) And so I need to do that now to make sure you've been in full compliance with the terms of this rental agreement. Or you can just go ahead and say that you're going to renew for another year and we don't have to worry about it. I won't come in at all. Right. I think it's probably a little more analogous to what's happening here, but those are just one of a couple of different retaliatory measures that customers, that customers will experience. And the cost savings that you might get from switching are now being put up against the cost you would incur from complying with. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to explore potentially the pushback to this, right? Mm Because the way you describe it, it sounds completely like a no brainer, right? Transparency. Who doesn't like transparency? I mean, we've had that conversation in the consumer sense with privacy policies where Congress is saying like, look, we can't have this ongoing situation where, you know, iOS does an update and you click the button and the customer has no idea what they've agreed to. Right. And and you've kind of articulated the business version of that. And then of course, you know, this idea, like I can shop for cloud providers without being retaliated against. So all sounds great, but are there not legitimate reasons why companies might want to, you know, have a single vendor solution or why Microsoft doesn't want to make its products necessarily interoperable with Apple products, right? I mean, there are, one is a quality of service issue, right? If, if I am allowing, if I am a, you know, cloud vendor, I allow you to take your licenses to a new provider and something happens, you know, a data breach or whatever, I don't necessarily want to be held, held liable for whatever happened with that situation, right? So maybe that's why I say, no, you cannot take the licenses that you previously, previously bought from me to a new provider because I don't trust that other provider or they're my competitor. Why should I help them? Are there not legitimate reasons, whether it's a quality of service issue or a cybersecurity issue, to not, you know, have this kind of open system where people can shop freely and use products together? Well, it's not necessarily talking about an open system. We're talking about like an easily integrated system or an interoperable system. They are two very distinct things, as I know you you are aware, um, especially in in this space, especially since there's a whole other kind of series of, of questions that get raised within the open source community, right, right, right. which we're not raising. In the, so let, uh, let's accept your premise, like more yes. easily integrated and dropped. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Are there reasons not to do that? But, I mean, there's, there's certainly reasons why, um, both for business reasons, and there are reasons that, that companies have, have been doing this. I mean, this has been a business that has been in development over the past, like, you know, decade as there's been this, this growth uh, of the cloud. And I would say, kind of from the perspective of the coalition, some of the same reasons that are being purported to do this, we think are the reasons why you need to have oversight, greater clarity in this space. Okay, so let's just take cybersecurity to begin with. So absolutely, you want to make sure that you, you um, as a vendor, that you're able to effectively secure and, and ensure the security of your products. Well, there's an interesting that ha- interesting thing that happens when you have the vendor that's selling you the productivity software um, is also selling you the security service. Where is the push and pull? Okay. Is there an incentive for them to be able to like 
to disclose in real time or really actively make sure they're aware of like all the potential issues or bugs that are happening in the productivity software because it potentially would show that they have a stronger cybersecurity um, software or is it that they should maybe have some, you know, they, they want to be careful of how much they expose flaws in either. So it's also, quite frankly, part of the reason why in cyber resiliency plans, you want to have a diversification of vendors. It is one of the, like, quote unquote, best practices out there that you want to make sure you have different vendors looking for different things. So while there's certainly, you can make the argument that there are cybersecurity concerns, it's also for the same reason that you want to make sure that you can have a diversity of cybersecurity providers that catch everything and there's not a twisted interest and maybe not not disclosing all of those. As a, as a business, you know, it's it's something that these are all kind of questions that are coming up for for everyone. And I, I do want to make a distinction because, you know, a lot of different companies bundle. Like this is something that it is looking at while you find the best cost savings and the best services for your customers um, and for your consumers. But when you're looking at having the, either the bundles get too big, but also tied, like the discounts and everything tied to that, and also not being able to switch things out um, in the efficiency, that's when you have more and more questions being raised. So let's get to potential remedies, right? So accepting the premise that this type of anti-competitive and you know vendor lock-in behavior is happening, it's harming businesses, it's harming consumers, right? Then policymakers, in theory, should have an interest in, in doing something about it. Your coalition has talked about the Strengthening Agency Management and Oversight of Software Assets Act. Very exciting title. If you spell out the acronym, it's Samosa, but we're not talking about delicious Indian food today. We're just talking about- uh, Although I am a little hungry right now. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. This bill, by tech policy standards, seems pretty tame, right? It's basically having agencies kind of do some introspection about, you know, what software they're using and how much it's costing. I mean, seems pretty benign. Um, Have you gotten any pushback? Are you optimistic that if if this bill passed and agencies- were kind of doing this introspection that it would lead to better choices, better results? Like, what do you hope to accomplish if this bill were to pass? Well, if the bill were to pass, I mean, A, yes, we're optimistic. Um, we do think that this is providing some, like, very clear and, and good next steps. It's actually building off of initial traction and, and efforts of the Megabyte Act from several years ago. And I would say kind of putting some additional teeth in it in terms of like putting a finer tooth on what the CIO should be looking at and reporting and also kind of highlighting this. Has there been pushback? Well, of course there is. Because anytime you're asking for greater understanding of what's going on in contracts that really are worth quite a lot of money, you're going to receive pushback. I think a lot of it is, some of it are around questions of what are certain departments and agencies like those within the DOD where there are kind of a lot of black boxes. Um, What are we supposed to do? Like, I do think that those are kind of some potentially legitimate questions. There's other ones that are, we have seen expressed concerns with, with kind of not having a, a focus on restrictive licensing. Like we do think like part of the reason why we have been pleased to see the movement, you know, hopefully soon the reintroduction of, of this bill is because it is actually taking, it's like, are there, are these um, restrictive practices occurring? How should they be addressed or what do they look like? And beginning to have that transparency. We do think that's a large part of the value for having these reports, both for Congress to look at and also for setting any changes in procurement policy in the future. Through the coalition, you've pointed to 
you know, bad actors or folks that have engaged in some of these practices. In theory, you're hoping to kind of raise awareness, maybe lead to some organic change within the industry. But let's, you know, assume that, you know, the the Samosa bill happens, the agencies take a look, but they don't really change what they're doing. This this all kind of continues and the companies don't, you know, from by their own benevolence decide to adopt these principles. Are there practices today that would just be illegal under existing antitrust law, right? Like we've we've seen cases about tying before. There are other, you know, industries in the past that have gotten in trouble for trying to kind of lock people into contracts or use their dominance in one area to try to force you to use their product in another area. Are we going to see cases that potentially create a case law here that even absent any additional legislation from Congress start to force companies to change how they behave? I think anything is possible. I mean, certainly in the European Union, um, there are currently four different complaints that are currently pending about Microsoft and and different behavior that that's over there. It's unclear yet whether the the EU is going to take these up. Are they going to take them? If they take them up, are they going to take them up individually? Are they going to consolidate them? But I mean, it's it's certainly showing some signs that from a competitive standpoint. Companies are looking at, at filing complaints. I know that the United Kingdom is also looking at this. Over in the U.S., um, I mean, at least from the Coalition uh, for Fair Software Licensing's perspective, I mean, we do support any policy and efforts that are aligned with these fair software licensing principles. Will that result in a complaint? I mean, it could, but it's that's up to the decision of, you know, DOJ, FTC, or, you know, individual companies to decide. But I think it's having something that is beginning to highlight this, what I do think that the principles for fair software licensing do is they're an effective oversight tool. I mean, they they are very high level. Like they aren't going down to the granular level of what looks, what is the exact details that need to be included in these contracts. It's not something that is like even looking at being standardized. These are kind of oversight principles and accountability guidelines. And it's something that I think that if there's interest in whether it be Congress or relevant regulatory agencies, you know, we would welcome having that if there, if it's seen that there's like different bad actors that are out there. So you've already kind of given us a little bit of a forecast into the future. Is there anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with before we end the show? Oh man, that's a really open, this is going to end up being the, like the hardest question. <laughs> anything um, to plug? Well, I mean, I would say would, would welcome people to come to the coalition's website. It's fairsoftwarelicensing.com. Um, and it's generally, I would say, as you begin to dig into this, I mean, I know that we have primarily a Washington base that's that's here. What has been interesting is that as you begin to dig into this, you'll see the connection of software licensing to a wide range of issues because it is fundamentally connected to questions around AI and, and other questions that are that are much more kitchen table topics. And um, I welcome the outreach from from anyone who wants to learn more. Well, we'll certainly uh, provide that website in the show notes and links to some of the pieces we reference. My guest has been Ryan Triplett, Executive Director of the Coalition for Fair Software Licensing. Ryan, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Find this podcast in uh, Google Play or Apple App Store. Hopefully when you download the podcast, there isn't some sort of restrictive license that prevents you from listening to the podcast in whatever app you so choose. Uh, hopefully you're able to freely shop for this wonderful podcast wherever you like. <laughs> Please leave us a review if you like what you hear or not. That's fine too. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. 